You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is a world famous comedy theater and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage at work, at home and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard. Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is getting the yes and. This is a long one. Uh, I'm talking to Jesse David Fox, who is a senior editor at New York Magazine's Vulture, where he has been covering comedy since 2012. And he also executive produces the Vulture Festival. He also hosts the podcast Good One, a podcast about jokes where he has interviewed such comedic luminaries as Hannah Gadsby, Bo Burnham, Tig Notaro, Kevin Hart, and Seth Meyers. He's got a really great new book. It's called Comedy Book, How Comedy Conquered Culture and the Magic That Makes It Work. Enjoy the pod. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Jesse David Fox, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. There are so many ways to enter this conversation, uh, but I thought I'd start by telling you what I thought was kind of a pro- profound exchange I had with Mark Maron. Sure, great. So about 10 years ago, we opened this new venue at Second City called Up Comedy Club, and we started booking national stand-up comics. And Mark was booked, and he and I were walking through the halls at Second City, and in our lobby, we have all the photos from the last 65 years of all the mm-hmm. alumni uh, who have come through this place, and they proceed chronologically. And after the tour, Mark was saying that he was seeing comedy hero after comedy hero who seemingly died for their comedy, like John Belushi and Chris mm-hmm. Farley, John Candy. And then he got to the wall with Stephen Colbert, Steve Carell, Amy Sedaris, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, all comedy heroes, and none of whom had talent that was somehow fueled by excess. And it made him question his prior belief that you were only a great comic if something was seriously wrong with you. Yeah. Did he, did he, where did he land on it? Did he ultimately be like, maybe he was like, he was like, oh man, this is a shot in the face. Well, it's also 10 years ago when I think that was like around when he started being more open to other people's successes and not, and not only defining them in terms of his failures, because as he's becoming more successful, it's hard to then be like, to hold on to that. Yeah. Yeah. It also doesn't make any sense. It's like, if you were like, how did that person make it? And then not me, when you're making it, you can't really be. You you're not you realize how sort of arbitrary it kind of can be, I imagine. And also just it is it's a weird vibe to be bitter when you are now successful. You can't be like yeah. nothing's working out. And you're like, well, people now dream of your career. So I think it, it all that all makes sense. Like, I think I mean, I've been interviewing Mark for 11, 12 years, maybe. And I do feel like this to chart his shift where he's like, oh, I'm now an elder statesman from the position of like successful story. Not like I'm no longer the sort of um, poster child of like when it goes wrong or what happens when you stay in it too long. Like it, it's 
he's ultimately had to accept that. And I think his standup has gotten actually much better because of that. Yeah. Um, Or, yeah, I think it ultimately, I think he would say it better as well. I think there's obviously a charm to his earlier standup, but like, I do think he would say like, it's the work is better as a result. And and I think you talk about this in the book, this, this, I mean, you know, changing your act is necessary. And, And what I always talk about, one of the things that's very cool about the second city system, you know, we have these three touring companies that go play the colleges and performing arts centers and that sort of thing. You graduate from those, hopefully onto a resident stage where you write your own show. Yeah. But what the colleges, in addition to teaching, you know, uh, our, our, our actors, you know, they're doing mostly archives. So they're sort of learning yeah. form and all that stuff. But the college audiences are telling them what's uncool now. <laughs> so, yeah. you, know, you know, an Adam McKay scene from 1995, which in particular called Gump, where he uses the term retarded, yeah. you know, college audiences told us that wasn't cool way before anyone in Chicago coming to a resin stage would have said that. Would they say out loud, like, we don't say that word? Or they just were like, this sketch is uh, hinging on a word and they're like... It. You feel yeah, the yeah, I can it might be a boo. And it's like, and then someone's like, yeah, that's not cool anymore. And they're like, okay. And then we come back and we know we... we, we see, we change because we've been yeah, at yeah. this for so long. But yeah. a lot of comics, like, don't want to change. So will you rewrite that sketch or just don't do that sketch anymore? We tried. (laughs) Did not work without the word. Interesting. And also just like, I think word choice, which I obviously get into in the book. Yeah. Like we, when, when we often talk about words being dated or whatever in comedy, it's often like the, the words people don't say anymore that are bad or inappropriate, but there's like a lot of words that can exist in comedy that, sounds so wrong to the ear of a young person. Like, I think the example I use is like reefer or grass, right? <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of second uh, second city sketches where someone is like hinging on smoking grass or something. Yeah. And if you did that now at colleges, one, they'd be like, what the hell are you talking about? And right. two, even the tension around weed at all would not register to them, right? I think right. that there's an assumption that like, one, the only thing that changes is that people become more sensitive to certain words. And also there's assumption that like the opposite doesn't happen. There's so many words now that people are so much less sensitive about, right? The example I use is like people say bitch on TV all the time mm-hmm. and, and like cross the spectrum. And it's like catchphrases for so many different ca- characters. There's like, they say bitch and it's fine. And it's like, and as a person who I, I personally don't curse that much that I'm, it is fascinating, you know, that like what we now allow i think the um other examples like obviously like pregnant you're allowed to say or yeah um one of the seven words that george carlin had was piss imagine like people being sensitive to piss you're just like yeah piss you wouldn't even, yeah, would even know that could be no. a curse no. um so it, it goes different ways and and it's holding on to anything holding on to comedy too tightly and holding on to any art form too tightly is just a recipe for for limiting it and like the book is about the opposite the book is about expanding it so so that that's what i got out of it i i mean i was obviously we, we are both comedy nerds for here for it'll be 35 years next week yeah. and 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 um but the the thing was when i would step back and reading the book i'm like well it's also about life yeah and, and and unsurprisingly, in the sense that I think the arts in general, theater and comedy for sure, were done as reflections of the way we live. Sure. So it, it shouldn't be surprising. And as we, the conversation we were just having, I was recalling 
playing in Vienna, when we started playing at Vienna's English Theater every year, and this is in the 2000s, um, and they were just uninterested in any comedy about being gay. Yeah. She's like, like cut out the gay stuff. Like it's yeah, just yeah. not going to go over. And it was like, why is Vienna enlightened? So, so, so to your point that words change also, if you're looking at comedy math, it's, it's also like, where are you? Yeah. It's yeah, different I mean, in different places. Yeah. I mean, there's so many different contexts in which comedy exists. And there's a chapter I have about context and like so much comedy, as I say, like all art form is created in some sort of context, but less, all, not all art forms are as dependent on it, where you can see a painting outside of its context and you kind of can get it um obviously more modern art is a little bit harder but like if you see a you know i think this thing i say is like if you see an axe murder or whatever you still will be like well that's a scary thing that's happening mm-hmm. but if you see a lot of comedy outside of the context of this is in a comedy frame you'd be like well that's a horrible thing that's happening i think i say if you see someone in a wedding dress diarying in the street you wouldn't be yeah. like well that's hilarious right you'd be first be like what the hell is what's wrong is happening yeah. and i think the point being is like um the the audience the time in which you're doing it like all of these things are telling you what you're pushing up against what you are the the common understandings what they the the room needs to feel like they're able to have fun right it's like if something terrible happens recently mm-hmm. like that is the context of the space and you you address that in some ways or you play into that in some ways and like there's no way to divorce it. There's, there's just, I think nope. there are comedians who hope or believe their acts can be bulletproof or the, that their acts don't need a context. That are sort of like they make these pristine jokes. And I think it's just completely naive or a reflection of the fact that either they're only actually just playing the same places, types of places over and over again. And they just, they're just assuming that's reality or they are so um, famous and or have the charisma of a famous person that they essentially turn all rooms into like a showcase for them because they are that magnetic and you see it happen. Yeah. That they're like, all you got to do is blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, well that works for you, Jim Carrey. Like you actually don't need proper setups because by the time you're getting to the act out, they didn't even care what you said beforehand. Yeah. Um, so that's why I say like at the beginning, young comedians are operating in the context of the room they're playing. And then more experienced comedians are trying to, um, are building the show around the context of their own act and then having the audience be in that space. They're like, this is a me show. This is, you're not at the comedy venue anymore. You're at a Brian Regan venue. I think is the person, you know, like, and, and that, you know, creates certain expectations. And as a result of those expectations, you, by confirming or denying those expectations, you kind of play into it. Um, But I, you know, the goal is always to be like, they're, they're even, I think, you know, reject a sort of knee jerk well i didn't laugh so that probably wasn't funny it's was like well they're probably be, that was probably funny yesterday yep yeah so why well, was that it, you know and and, and to, to what we're talking about with the touring company literally the training involves going to a yeah. bunch of other people's homes you know their yeah. context and they're differing every yeah. single place and, and and you you work on that and the reward is when you get the space here to do your own thing which is non we don't interfere i yeah. mean like I can, I can, t- you know, and uh, Katie Rich and I got in this argument all the time around a certain word yeah. uh, that we didn't want her to use, and she kept using it, and she used it yeah. <laughs> like, her whole time here, and it was like because that's her space, and I'm honoring the thing yeah. that I set up years and years ago, and it works. We're still here, still selling out 
houses. And I think, too, what people don't necessarily understand is this evolution. You talk about it, you know, the, the sort of like the, the, you know, the sick comics and this would be Lenny Bruce and yeah. Saul and, and Dick Gregory. And, and then you have second city coming up Python, you know, across yeah. the pond. Um, and, and there were cool comedy clubs run by gangsters in Chicago that are, were very different from what we consider to be the comedy boom of the eighties. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. All and it all contributes to a thing that exists now that really has, as I don't think, has ever existed another time. And this this comes to a, you're having this conversation with the head of research at Comedy Central, Shannon Cook, about this 2012 survey, which showed that millennials viewed humor as the number one factor in their self definition. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I can't remember if I write it there, but I've noted it is a self serving survey, right? It's Comedy Central putting sure, it out, of course. To be like, hey, advertisers, we're the destination for that. We're, but there's we're been other other studies yeah, that have backed this. Yeah, and I think it is something that comedy as an art form is extremely young. Even if you d- define what I think of as modern comedies, which is essentially from minstrel shows of the 19th century on, which doesn't seem like modern, but when you compare it to painting, that's extremely yeah. modern, or theater, whatever. Right, there's yeah. a comedic traditions that existed, but there's a direct line. And... And as a result, there was sort of this like constant etching out of space and sort of finding what the value systems and the rules of the art form are. And while also pushing it back against a sort of in, innate knee jerk that a lot of people have to not take it seriously. It, that That is, you know, I speculate in the book that it's, it is partly an outgrowth of um, the rise of essentially uh, class classifying or I don't know if that's the right word, but essentially creating a sort of highbrow, lowbrow structure of popular culture, which was a sort of invention of rich people of the late 19th century. It's not like that existed. It's sort of these people were like, oh, we don't want to watch plays with poor people anymore. They don't act how we behave. Right. There's an earlier draft of the book where I go into this forever. I found it fascinating. There's a riot. Um, there's the Astor Place riots. And truly, like people were murdered over how to perform Shakespeare. And but at the, the outgrowth was essentially rich people decided there are certain ways in which art should be consumed and certain mm-hmm. art should be valued. And of the many things they did was like, well, proper behavior implies a, a higher quality of art, a higher brow of art. And of the things that they looked down upon was laughter, right? Loud laughter is a sort of uncontrolled, unrefined reaction to art. And as a result, that standard kept on being maintained even through the boom of popular culture in the 20th century. So you have film critics that I note will often knock comedies that we think of are now classic comedies. There are tons of examples and like really dismissive. And it it seemed partly as a way for film to establish itself as a sort of higher brow art is by like, oh, well, film is this thing it's not comedy comedy is a sort of lowbrow thing and and that was supported because like comedy was often being performed in burlesque shows or at strip clubs or like not in at at mob rub venues but then you kept on having people and you kept on having certain comedians and certain audiences that liked that responded to it that's that were they were sophisticated they found comedians that were sophisticated and the art form kept on moving forward and then and then there'd be something that pushes it back like it did it's so interesting when you look at like how where comedy is now because in many ways like at the end of the 70s where you are with Richard Pryor like oh wow the comedy is like really 
if it keeps on going this way, blah, blah, blah. But then the 80s, it's this huge step backwards. But the point being is like, what they're never really was able to do on a large scale was develop people who were fans of comedy, like as a whole, opposed to, and I'll, I'll, there's a one exception, which I'll explain in a second, but like, opposed to people who like certain comedians, right? There used to be like a lot of comedians say there's like, there's allowed to be like five comedians at a time, mm-hmm. right? And everyone just knows those five comedians and that's the comedians they know. Otherwise, they go to a comedy club and they're expecting someone that appeals to them. They're not going to the comedy club to ex- to see an artist do their work. They're going to see what they think comedy means. And, and then that sort of find the 80s and the 90s when the sort of those comic clubs started closing, you had a space where more individualistic, uh, yeah. more specific artists were able to explode. And, um, and through that, and then through the internet, people started de- developing sensibilities through the shows that were on the air in the nineties, the people that made it out of the eighties, they were Seinfelds. We were just being told there's these people that are stand up comedians and they're important. We didn't know, this was not normal. We didn't know right. that previous generations of comedy fans had to seek out comedians. They had to mm-hmm. like open their TV guide and be like, oh my God, Gary Shanley is going to be on Carson. I'm going to like build my week around this. So as a result, I, when I think of sort of comedy fans before millennials, I think of them almost always as people that went into comedy. Like I think of Judd Apatow, right? It's like, it's like Judd Apatow was a comedy nerd. But like for him to be a comedy nerd demanded so much purpose and intention that of mm-hmm. course, when they were became adults, they're like, "Well, I guess I have to become a comedian." That's what it means to like comedy. For me and my cohort, it's just like, yeah, it's a thing that's on. It's like the Daily Show just was the a late night show on that I was watching. Of course, I got the news from that. You know, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to until I got to college and like read time magazine or whatever about if that should be the case or not and so you have this generation that it just was around and i think there's a lot of ways in which we are tasked with communicating with each other millennials and gen z on down is that um are different than ways people communicate in the past and as a result humor has been is used as a way of communicating in a way that sort of hadn't been used in the past because um and not just not just humor but like comedians humor right like I, obviously people were funny with their friends before but i think you would not the ability to sort of like send clips as a way of expressing yourself or posting as a way of expressing yourself i think is what she was trying to say which is like opposed to like posting a song you like on Twitter, you'd be like, "This is this defines me because this defines what my yeah. sense of humor is." Which I think, in some ways, can be very revealing. And I think that is sort of what she was getting at, and has been once she told me that, which was again like ten years ago. That's sort of what I've been following. Which is like, mm-hmm. if we're using this for self definition, mm-hmm. well, then what? Who are we? What are we saying about us? What are, What are they saying? If people are using it that intensely, if it's that meaningful to people now. And it's that meaningful to people. Me, that means there must be a lot to it. Even the comedy I don't like. Um, you know, I think in the past, there'd just be like critics who were not full-time comedy critics who'd just be like, this is funny. And then that's it, right? That, that's sort of all they understood was their personal taste. And like, I read about a lot of comedy in the book that I don't particularly like. 
in terms of like the most basic of my subjective sensibility, but all of it I'm fascinated by, even the stuff I'm sort of repulsed by. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it, it really is odd, given that human beings since millennia yeah. have, have incorporated humor uh, in, into their lives. Um, you look at the advertising world, the amount yes. of money that is spent on the Super Bowl ads that are supposed to be comedic. And the, you know, I'm married to, to an academic in, in this field. One of, I mean, they just had a conference at MIT for the 10 of them, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. which was not funny. And again, because it's a lot of men in the philosophy departments, uh, you know, mansplaining to Anne, who Del Close is, who yeah, she yeah. studied with. So it's just sort of like, all right. And, and so, so, and I think for all the reasons, uh, Bernie Solins, who co-founded Second City, talked about Second City being one of these places that was mapping uh, lowbrow onto highbrow and mm-hmm. highbrow onto lowbrow. That was the point. Yeah. So, so that, you know, and, and that is always something we've always been <clears throat> known for. But we've had to cloak ourselves in the fact that we're an actor's equity theater. Yeah, yeah. Rather than, no, we don't call ourselves a comedy club. So, like, when we opened up Comedy Club, we literally called it a comedy club because we wanted it to be different than what was downstairs, even though... You know, we stopped doing the stand-ups pretty much and, and went back to doing our stuff because it sold better and we made more yeah. money. But all that all that to sort of say is is like, God, the, the dodging from comedy appears to be finally over. And and one of the things I really enjoyed about your book is I think your chapters get at the most interesting aspects of the work. Oh um, good. So so and the, and the fact that chapter two is audience. Yeah. And and talks about our work as being created in conversation with the audience, which is all of comedy. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's the tree falls in the forest. You hear it, you know, is a, a joke that no one laughs at a, a joke. And, and yeah, you actually talk about that. But I think this I, th- I thought, frankly, your the way you talked about seeing Chris Rock bomb all the time and in particular that gig at Park West. Yeah. And then what led him to do, I think that's an incredibly uh, important way for people to maybe understand what it means for an artist like that, that, who, quite frankly, I think right now is revered. And I think people will be shocked that you saw him bomb that many times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, to 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 explain what happened, it's like, you know, Chris Rock, especially now is sort of if you're younger than I am, he just was like a guy. Right. I sort of if you I was just old enough where I was allowed to watch that special, which means my parents were more lenient than other people's mm-hmm. parents. I was maybe like 12, 11. And I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. It just sort of was immense. But, you know, the the thing about Chris Rock is there, there are different things that comedians are good at. And um, there are comedians that I think are revered as a reference like Dave Chappelle, who you put him in a room and he'll figure out where that room is at. Yep. Um, for better or for worse. And Chris is less that type of guy. He's more, I'm working, I'm writing right now. And I'm and I'm using you, for better or for worse, to figure out where the things are, where the juice is. So, you know, the story I tell is I saw him, I used a fake ID to go to the comedy cellar. Um, I don't say this in a book. I actually can't remember if I needed to use a fake ID. I just know I did. And, yeah. but, um, and, you know, Chris Rock was famous enough at that point to drop in as and not be listed. He drops in because he's working the MTV Music Video Awards. And I'm like, oh, my God, Chris Rock. All I knew, I didn't really understand the comedians work on material yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. I was in high school still. And I definitely didn't think of like Chris Rock ever working on material exactly. 
because he's Chris Rock and he's this sort of fully formed thing. And he he goes on stage and I'm just like so excited. This is, you know, late and he just does like a bunch of like not great jokes with no energy to them. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? And I I I have heard that he doesn't mind one well, of the many reasons he doesn't mind bombing. It's like that's a better story than I want to see Chris Rock and he was good. Yeah. Like so he knows that he's giving people something, right? Like, look, I'm still talking about it 20 years later. If I saw Chris Rock at the comedy cellar when I was younger and he did pretty good, I just I wouldn't even think twice about it. But then so in the year between that and when I saw him live again, which would be like 15 years, I'd heard him on podcasts, I heard him in interviews, and I'd heard about this sort of his process, which involves bombing. And and the idea is, uh, so I'll I'll say what the second show was like. So I went to see him in Brooklyn. I was at a show at Brooklyn. It's like, we have a special guest, put away your phone, it's Chris Rock. And he comes in in a big winter coat talks in a monotone he's looking down he's not making any connection to the audience whatsoever mm-hmm. anything a comedian would do to help them do a good job right like the most basic things if you're taking a stand-up class he did everything they say don't do yeah and 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 when a joke kind of worked or even when he got some noise off our setup he would then go what else what else like completely kill any momentum he might have had and his goal is what he, you know, is that for every joke, he wants to know if the sort of the joke or the premise is sort of undeniable on its own. So he has a true, pure read on it and not just, oh, I can put an act together. Like he really wants every element of it to be tested in this way. It's a very bizarre way. Not no comedian would do this because it's hard. He bombs for an hour in he's wearing a winter coat on stage and minimum that's quite hot. Like, but he wanted to communicate, don't don't take this seriously, I can leave at any moment. So then as a result, the audience hasn't settled it. Like nothing. Yep. And and it's because um, you know, the story is at the Park West Theater. He this is right after he left SNL. So he's both kind of famous, but also not established in a sort of weird way. Like he wasn't established as an artist as much as he sort of was a name that could he was get not people. great. He was not so people remember this. He was only four years, I think, on SNL. Yeah. And, he, and he, he was not um he didn't light the room on fire. Yes. And and there's lots of reasons that fed into it. One, yeah. he wasn't comfortable. Two, the rate the the writers weren't particularly inclined to write for a black person and the only time they did would be like oh, i have an idea for a black sketch they couldn't understand of him any other way yeah. plus he was heralded as the next eddie murphy and people would be like well eddie did it just do it right yeah so he leaves to go to in living color and it's that's last season but like so he's but he's headlining a show at the park west theater and um because he's sort of already been successful he hadn't he hadn't watched def jam def comedy jam he hadn't performed there so Martin Lawrence was opening for him. And Martin Lawrence at this time is red hot. Yeah. But Chris doesn't totally know that. Chris, he's opening for Chris. What does he know? Mm-hmm. Um, at least this is the story as it's told. It's a comedian telling the story, so who knows? But Yeah, that's right. But that's I and I make that clear in throughout the book. There's so many stories where you're like, a comedian has told this story, maybe not on stage, but a comedian uses the same process that they use for telling their st- stories on stage and off stage. So that's a grain of salt. But um, so he's in backstage. He hears a loud noise. He hears like he's just hearing screaming. So he goes to see. He thinks there's a fight, and it's just Martin Lawrence crushing. And Chris Rock is like, didn't know 
that was possible. He didn't know that that was a gear. Yeah. And, you know, and, and from that moment on, again, this is the legend. He goes, I'm going to, I got to be better. I'm going to just do the road. I'm just going to play in front of all different audiences. For the most part, he's playing in front of mainstream audiences, which meant white audiences. I got to play in front of black audiences everywhere. And I got to bomb. He didn't say pride and go, I didn't go, I'm, I have to bomb, but I'm going to bomb because I'm going to try to figure it out. And he would just go up three, four times a night and just try to figure out what could be funny about him. And it took years, like truly. And, and of the many things he learned, it's like how to essentially like pull people, you know, like the, as I write about in the book, he has, he has a nonverbal learning disorder, which affects how people relate to people's nonverbal speech. So he hears sounds of how people react, but his relationship to how their discomfort in their bodies or stuff like that might not affect him like other people do. Mm-hmm. And he would just hear how they reacted. And he would go to barbershops and he'd throw out ideas and he would just listen to what they said and he would take it in. And I've talked to people who since who've read the book who know Chris. And they're like, that is what it's like. It's quite weird. He'll be in social circumstances and be like, what do you guys think about this? And just sit back and listen to them. And so it culminates in bringing the pain, which is a sort of, you know, one of the three or four most sort of electric moments in sort of stand-up history, just in terms of how of this time it is and how exciting it was to see a new comedian that, you know, have a first special and have it be this this seismic thing and the the reaction was incredible if you watch it special it just sort of feels so immense even now but and at the centerpiece is this joke black people versus n-words which is one of the most famous jokes that's ever been told and it's and it's somewhat complicated to watch now especially as yeah. white people but like you what you can tell watching it is he knows exactly where this joke needs to be This joke is like very offensive to black people from black people. But, and some people felt so at the time, like it's a fairly conservative joke, but at to that audience and to the reaction to it, it was exactly where they are. And he talks about there would be years he would do it and it was not right. And people threatened to beat him up. And afterwards it came out and there's a story where Tupac threatened to beat him up. Like, so that's why this, when he got slapped, it wasn't, Though it's weird to be slapped uh, at the Oscars. Right. It's not like completely. It's not like he never lived a life where he thought people might not love his jokes. Yeah. Wow. So so it's a story about like how the audience can be used. Now, I, I talk about other ways in which the audience does not have to be. It doesn't have to be so transactional. Right. But like that's the art form. And that's what makes it so exciting. Like it isn't like. I talk about stand-up because it's so distilled, but like obviously improv is the same thing, which is like the audience is telling you where the show is at um, if you're able to listen to it. And I've been in many improv audiences where it's undeniable that I mean, like no one could have written down the direction of a thing, but like, that's what it was, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting reading the book as an, you know, you, you, you are a connoisseur of stand-up. I'm late to it, and mostly through my wife, because she's had to study it for teaching college sure. courses. And, and I've, really, I've really benefited from 
uh, one of the things that she talks about that's a difference between stand-up performers and improv performers. And when I give keynotes, I actually talk about this now. They used to actually not really want me to talk about comedy, and now actually, yeah. it's, to your point, oh, a yeah. more accepted. But uh, Anne talks about this theory around improv comedians are perspective-taking, you know, mm. getting the audience to give suggestions and spitting it back out of them. Mm. And what stand-ups need to do is perspective-giving. They have oh, to teach the audience how to view them. Usually, if you look at the beginning of the career, first five minutes of the act, it's talking about what's wrong with them. Yeah, yeah. Um, Mulaney's a drunk. Amy Schumer's a slut. Patton Oswalt's a schlub. Keep going, right? Yeah, yeah. And and so uh, what I translate this for the audiences I'm talking to in the business world is like, look, if you want to be an effective leader, effective communicator, you want people to follow you, you need to look at what these stand-ups do. Yeah, yeah. And people could care less about your success story. They want your fiasco mm. and the fact that you live the day to stand up in front of them and talk to them about it. Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. Cause I think there is a certain sort of inherent arc, right? Like there's, there is a, um, you know, I, I talk about how there's many ways in which comedy is communicated to people. Like people yeah. just go like, if you're laughing or not, that's, that's it. It's like, no, there's lots of amusing things. And there is a certain inherent juxtaposition of, when treated non cynically of like i'm so terrible but like look i'm doing this thing and that's good like there is a sort of contrast of like a person talking about how inept they are but like being the leader of a room that is an interesting contrast that exists and i think it is um you know the the other example uses sort of like hannah gatsby nanette even when it's not funny it, it is a funny thing to and not funny in a ha way, but funny in a sort of ironic way of like, I you're not laughing at a comedy show on purpose is a funny thing, but not to those people, obviously. Sure. Just like when um I always said like when Andy Kaufman read the great Gatsby out loud. Sure. It was it's a really funny idea. Maybe not to people there, but like when <laughs> I heard about it, I thought it was really funny. And yeah. and I and I think sort of it's it's hard. It's like I think stand up one when you think of comedy, ultimately you when you say comedy you first think of stand-ups stand-ups are sort of really examples that we have even like when improvisers get bigger at some point they're almost they all like become stand-ups they, they ultimately like have to kind of like like tina and amy right they now have to tour kind of a stand-up i know like, i saw that it was very because funny. you know like right before right before i wrote the book um or even wrote the the yeah right before i sold the book so while i was working on the um what's it called the uh oh, the proposal the pro- yeah the proposal or the treatment and i wrote a piece about improv a very long piece about improv for new york magazine and 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 part of it was like how improv really doesn't get respect and like what is it about it and there's a lot of reasons one it's that comedy doesn't get respect two it's like the earnestness of sort of the improv world three it's that like you can't make money doing it right nope. and like except here yeah, but like, but like, and the theater can make money, and some people can make my teachers, but like, of the many things, because this is right around the time where sort of the UCB people are talking about getting paid, and there's sort of yeah. all these reckonings that are happening. And I was taking, I, I took those things quite seriously, and, and there was a desire to throw out improv with the bathwater. And I was like, well, I've seen improv shows, they're good, it's a useful art form, not just as training, but like, you can work them out of it. And, um, and now it's like, but that is the thing of because until very, very recently with Ben Schwartz, right, where he's playing these huge venues, mm-hmm. but even filming it is so hard. It's yeah. hard to sort of like know how to orient improv 
as a work, right? Like so much of this book is about almost like aesthetic analysis or art, I, talking about it like art. Well, art's pieces, right? And like improv is this sort of ephemeral thing. And so, um, but I do think I, that idea, I like that idea of perspective taking perspective giving. That's it. So it's like, that's why it's like we, and I think, I wonder about other countries because like stand up is also so American, right? It's just like this, like, yeah. yeah it, no, no, it's not the same. I mean, there, there obviously is stand up elsewhere, but it's even, the lineage is even yes. newer. It's, yeah. it's, you know, and they're copying us. Um, now, that, yeah. now that will change. I thought actually when you talk about what photography did to painting is maybe the most salient way for people to think about these, the, how comedy has changed. Do you want to? Uh, yeah, I'd love to. It's my favorite thing I get to write in a book. Okay. Yeah. To write a book about comedy and then be like, cool, I'm going to spend sort of 400 words on this tangent about the invention of the photograph. And I don't even like couch it. I start the chapter being like, it's the time where the photograph was invented. So in the early-ish 19th century, I do talk about the early 19th century for a book about the last 30 years of comedy. Yeah. It's like, I only talk about the early 19th century and today. But so the photograph was invented. And in 1839, Paul de la Roche, um, yeah. he's working on the Hemicycle, which is a famous painting. And someone shows him a photograph. First time you've ever seen a photograph. Which is a funny to imagine it. I imagine very yeah. like and he and he so he sees it and he goes, like, from this moment now, painting is over. Right? <laughs> yeah, or or yeah. essentially like that. And it, I want to I have the chapter open. I might as well use that quote because it's so funny. No, it's um, great. Yeah, he goes, Oh. So he sees the photograph and he goes, As from today, painting is dead. Exclamation point. There's a famous story in the history of art. And so obviously it wasn't painting as we think of it obviously keep on existing and what he was suggesting and what proved correct is that without the need for this one service that we needed painting to do as the only way of depicting life painting was freed up they they don't you know Renoir's quote is saying like it freed the painter up from doing boring stuff like family portraits right essentially you can be like telling painters you can just be artists there's no you don't have to sneak at it you obviously your work can still be decorative or whatever but like ultimately we're now paying for your perspective and it accelerates you go from the impressionist to um early modern art to postmodern art and it's an idea called um by this philosopher art critic arthur danto the end of art and what he was not saying was art ended about but that the sort of primary value system in which art was meant to be defined was freed up so as a result each piece of art each artist was free to create their own meaning structures and it it and in so in, in many ways created even the idea we think of an artist as a person who's expressing themselves which is like of now so old hat it's but like truly like that is a newish phenomenon mm-hmm. um and then so i i think about that a lot because comedy is sort of in this place where you have one you know a lot of this book is about this sort of tension between this is this keep on pushing forward to make it more artistically interesting it is already so culturally relevant you it's you can't deny it and if you do deny it you seem silly like obviously it has this power you know like John Stewart and all of his followers came like, we don't do any of that. We don't give people the news. We don't. It's like, you guys do. You do. And you're so good at it. And not saying there should not have 
there's not to be news. Like I, I'd be happy if they're look, I'm a journalist. It'd be great if there'd be lots of newspapers to work for, but mm-hmm. what, what, so you have these sort of people. So on one hand, you have the art moving forward. And on the other hand, you have sort of people pushing back upon it, being like, well, this art doesn't need to move forward. All it is, is you just go and you got to make people laugh. And why that chapter where I write about this was a chapter called laughter. So like, it's, it's really like the hinge of the entire book. Like it is sort of the mission statement, which is like, if we do that, if we, if we minimize what comedy can do as a thing, a tool in which people use to get laughs, it will shrivel up and die because, because of technology, we have so many other ways of getting things to laugh at. Like right now on your, like on your phone, you have many things to laugh at. You have TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, all have video apparatuses that have created algorithms that know what you will laugh at that is not a comedian. And sometimes, and maybe you could lump a comedian into that. But the worst thing that could happen to comedy is that, yeah, comedians. I love comedians. I love dogs, dog videos. I love whatever. Like, that's that's where comedy is headed if comedians don't accept that they're making an art. Like, they don't, because... You know, I, as I said, you know, the two people I quote in the chapter, Gerard Carmichael and Hannah Gatsby, and both have, interestingly enough, different versions of like, mm-hmm. it's di- like, we will die. Like the comedian, I think Gerard calls like, comedians are ghosts. Mm. We're going through the motions of our previous life, not realizing things have changed. They have to give more to mean anything. It doesn't mean you have to stop being funny, but you have to accept that like, you are not just providing this one service. That service is already being provided by something else. And But the thing that's so interesting is, like, unlike Renoir and all the painters who are excited to be freed up, comedians are scared. And, you know, I, 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 I describe the book as this sort of love letter, right, to comedy. But it's a specific type of love, right? You know, the I believe people often use this as a... Um, when talking about the American political parties, but they're like conservatives love America. Like a child loves his parents or her parents and being like, they can do nothing wrong. No one can say anything bad about them. They're perfect. And they hold it. And like, it's a sort of jewel or whatever. And liberals love this country, like a partner who wants to see it grow and change. And that's what this is. It's a model for what that can look like while still loving and loving the idea that can change and in directions. I can't did not predict, you know, like every few years, I've now it's I've seen it happen enough that I've I've trained myself. But I'm like I don't know if there are any new comedians. I've seen all the comedians in town. I see what everyone's doing. Everyone's now doing a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then I go to a show. I see one person or two people. I write about in the book. Going to see Las Culturistas live in 2016, 2017, seeing 52 comedians, and be like, oh, okay, never mind. That's fine. I was nervous. I was like, I think comedy's dead. I see those 52 comedians. I'm like, oh no, comedy is more alive than it's ever been. And that, and that is always like, um, recently Vulture put out a list of the comedians you should and will know, which is a list I've been working on for 10 years since basically since I've been at Vulture. And like every year we do a list of 25, let's say, and I'm like, this might be the last 25 comedians there are. And then every year we start making a list and there's another 25. Well, I guarantee and, you as someone who has been in this business for yeah. a very long time, it's like they keep coming along. And yeah, there's I mean, three, three people on your list that are in from my wife's comedy studies program at Columbia okay. College, which is great. Oh, wow. That's great. That yeah, The fact that you have, like, I was a little old for this, but now you have 
generations of comedians who like majored in college comedy in college yeah there's like two or three of these things now yeah the thing is like um the thing i write about in the book is that like there's a the comedy boom as i defined it this comedy boom started in 2009 i coined it the second comedy boom 2012 or 2013 or whatever and even when i was working on that piece i i knew people in comedy were like yeah it's over though like this is kind of yeah you're this you're at the peak and now and then it's gonna be a decline and they're like everyone who's who made it has made it it's over and that was 10 years ago that people said it was over and like i think it just is what it is now it is not the 80s where it's going to rescind it is now just a thing people value a lot and if we're going to value it a lot if it's going to have this sort of major cultural importance we have to take it seriously yeah and no one does yeah that's it's it's fascinating i mean there, there's you know we're there's a report that just came out in the Chicago Tribune, uh, and there, it's it's a report that was done on theaters and museums. Something like theater attendance is down something like sixty percent. Museums are thirty percent. It's terrible. Yeah. And you know we're part of the League of Chicago Theaters here. I was the president of that organization for a while, very tied with all my theater friends. And it's awkward to have the conversation when they're like, "Well, how are you guys doing?" And like, "We're sold out." <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, and it's not like. It's not like the boomiest of the boom times, but yeah. our, but our, you know, the 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 shows are sold out, and yeah. and and the work is getting stronger, and and all the different things that you'd like to see where where it goes, and I think in part that's what makes it so funny that we spent so long trying not to call ourselves a comedy club. God forbid you should call it a skit. Yeah, yeah. Some, you know, it's it is a scene, it is a sketch, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All those things when the thing that is saving our bacon is. It's comedy and and that people know they know how to dress. They yeah. know what to expect. The, the context, as you're talking about, is perfectly set up for them. Yeah, it's interesting because I think highbrow culture shot itself in its foot by making it so inaccessible. Right. Like yeah. Yeah. And, it, and I and they are not and, and, and they have this sort of problem where their donors, I imagine, are people who are, who covet it's inaccessibility for sure. Right? So then how do you then make it more accessible? So then you're doing these little things like beyond to young people, people who are not of the donor class, right? It's like, how do you it's appeal to the donor class of people? The sort of like the white greatest generation people, how do you play to a young, younger generation with work that though they could respond to does not have tons of work that sort of, um, reflects the everyday life and not in just sort of a one-to-one way, but like literally just being like in a sort of really simple representational way. And I think that is, I think probably of the many secrets that comedy has going for it, which is sort of, it's always been a sneaky way to be sophisticated. It's always been a sneaky way to get messages across. It always seemed accessible and 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 that's why it's hard. Like I want it to not lose that. That is part of what makes it so great. The sort of not seriousness of the art form is like one of its great gifts it gives people by not taking things that make their lives so hard feel less heavy. You know, yeah. that is of the many things that runs through the book. And and when I say that, people often think of sort of either like, yeah, um, that's why I gotta make jokes about sexual assault because it's so heavy that blah, blah blah or they're like it ends up being political jokes but like people really just want material about dating they want someone to go on stage and talk about how dating is hard 
because if you're younger than 30, dating is so hard. Yeah. And no, all your friends are also doing it and they have no perspective. And then you just have a comedian who's, who is this sort of one hand self-deprecating person, this other hand, their leader being like, isn't dating hard? And as a person who sort of aged out of the dating is hard demo, it is fascinating to see how that has evolved as comedy has reflected more gender expressions and sexuality ex- perspectives. Yeah. You're like, wow, the really just a purity of the fact that people want to not they are going to these shows of many reasons to like get a sense of um, relief from the sort of thing that is bothering them. And that's not always like the heaviest thing in society. It's often sort of the most trivial things in society. Well, but that's yeah. There's the other side of that that you talk about too, which I want to touch on, which is yeah. grief, grief, yeah. And trauma and comedy. And so um, you lost your mom at a young age. Yes. Um, you lost your brother to a drug overdose. Uh, yes. Ann and I lost a daughter to cancer four yeah. years ago. Sorry about that. So we, we, you know, and, and this is the thing, and I talk about this when I get brought in, it's like, our stories are not unique, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but many people don't share. Yeah. And this is, this is a tragedy Yeah. <laughs> because, because, the, and I think what the catharsis, I remember one of the most powerful moments I ever had in Second City. We were creating a show, which ended up being called South Side of Heaven, with Sam Richardson mm. um, uh, and Edgar Blackman, who was uh, in, in the process. Um, his wife had a miscarriage during the process. And um, I was going to previews, and the producer at the time, Allison Riley, sort of said to me, you might want to prepare yourself for this. And, mm-hmm. and this is before Nora got sick or any of that. So yeah. I had been losing. I lost my parents, you know, and so I yeah. was in that realm. And uh, Edgar uh, played a scene where he met his son in heaven, played by Sam Richardson. Wow. And it was one of those Hannah Gadsby moments where it was really funny. It was not funny. And then it was funny again. <laughs> yeah. And um, and we're sobbing yeah. uh, in the audience. And, you know, and I remember Edgar saying later, because he had to do that every night. And he's like, well, this is kind of my way of working through it. Yeah. And the audience, and I swear to God, maybe the audience didn't know. Like, why should they know? I think a bulk of them knew. It's just that yeah. level of honesty comes comes across. So, and 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 also on Sam, to and this is the thing when someone understands or sees Sam Richardson, why his work is so good. Imagine him being this guy, you know, yeah, having yeah. this. So, so I'm you know for, for and for us in terms of being able to come back to Second City after we lost Nora was everything. Yeah. You know, of course, it was our community. We'd been here forever and all that. And everyone here was so wonderful. But also being able to be in a room and laugh and connect and do all those things. And I think that from what I read in the book and, you know, uh, is that for you as well, that became a place where it's like, let and and, and it doesn't mean that you want to veer away from the tough stuff. And you see Mulaney, right? Like that, like coming out of his issues. And anyway, talk about it. So, yeah. So, I mean, it... It's, you know, it's my book, you know, so it's like I can't not frame it how I see things. Right. And like, obviously, losing someone at a young age, it's hard not to frame everything as sort of a reaction to sort of being aware of fundamental fact that sort of everyone dies. And and every every audience member, even if they have not dealt with sort of a, a tragic death is broadly defined, but like 
they they understand that and they've dealt yeah. with the fact that they know that their parents are getting older or if they don't know they know it they know it and look and i will say a lot of audiences it's you know like th- i remember i've seen rosebud baker and rosebud baker had her, her sister died tragically at her at her um i think it's her high school graduation party at oh. rosebud's high school graduation party oh. her sister died in sort of a it, it, like a really sort of a tragic and bizarre accident at a in a hot tub, but I, she'll do a lot of jokes about it. She'll I've seen her do jokes about death, and the audience is just not there, and I'm laughing the loudest. But like it because it's so it's not easy. But like you know the the quote I bring up a few times is from Victor Frankl from Man's Search for Meeting, and so he was in out you know he was in his concentration camp. So like. And he talks about sort of how funny it is and tough. So I did pull up the quote to, to underline it, which is uh, humor more than anything else in the human makeup can afford an aloofness and an ability to rise above any situation, even if only for a few seconds. And that space is not nothing. I think for people right. who have dealt with grief, it is so heavy. Mm-hmm. And it feels heavy and insurmountable. It and 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 not move onable from or whatever the word is. And those that's those moments where it sort of lightens it up, just gives you a perspective. You can see the world again. And you know, I I, I I don't want to say this. It, it's, and I do think I it, beyond it being my book, so I get to write about what's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. I do think that is comedy at sort of its most valuable, at its highest. You know, in so much as you know, I talk about Mark Maron's last special. We talked about losing his partner. Yeah, Lynn Shelton, and and when we talked about him together, that special is partly about what is what is challenging, what is challenging material, what is actually challenging material. It's not telling an audience who already is maybe transphobic that trans people are weird or whatever. Right, right. it is being vulnerable about a, a not funny thing, and mm-hmm. seeing if you all together can find some relief in that. Yeah, and. A lot of the book is about not just judging comedy about what you find funny. That's because it's it's too simple of a definition and too subjective of a definition. And a audience, a comedian can kill with the easiest stuff there is. So so you can't just be like, well, that comedian kills. I guess they're the best. They kill with they're playing a football stadium and they're killing. And it's like, you have to be able to acknowledge what's easier and what's harder. And that sometimes the harder stuff is more valuable because you can't get it anywhere else. Well, TIG. Yeah, it's like TIG. Or it's like I I read a lot about 9-11. And it's like, there's a lot of great things made about 9-11. Movies, TVs, books. I um in my procrastinating phase, I read a lot of books about 9-11 and then realized none of this was going to be useful. <laughs> but I was like, this book was probably written three years after the fact, came out five years, whatever. Mm-hmm. Mark Marin went on f- up four days later. A lot of comedians went up two days later. Mm-hmm. 
in some cities, not in New York, especially. And that pre- being able to be present in sort of national grief is there's I there's no it other. Was, un- it was unbelievable. We were, we were down one day, yeah, and then did a free show the next night for people who were stranded here and ordered pizza. Yeah. So 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 we did whatever we we improvised. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we didn't even do the show. We just improvised. Yeah. And we ordered pizza and sat down and just talked with everyone. That and I think it is the comedians. I won't say comedians' duty, but like. That, you know, I, I write about um, the day Roe v. Wade was overturned. That happened in the process of writing the book. And I went to a show and they didn't talk about it. And there was a, I had a feeling at that moment of like, they're not doing, they're not doing what it. we need. They're, they're not doing kind of what i i need from them but also yeah. i i feel like they're doing a disservice to the art form yes to not do what's truest to it which is being present and offering this sort of aloofness to a thing and again they really did not have to do a lot Th- these comedians just yeah. just needed to be like look i know it's a weird day but let's have fun right not the best but like that's all they needed to do but there's other shows in new york city that i could have gone to i talked about alison Libby's show which was about which she had been working about her own abortion before any of this even thought it might be overturned. And she talks about what those weekends of shows were like those weeks afterwards. And she gave those people something they couldn't get anywhere else. And those people have friends, you know, those Mm -hmm. people have family. When, Mm -hmm. when you lose people, you have friends, you have family, Mm -hmm. but your friends and family, one are not professional comedians. Mm -hmm. And two, it is a lot to ask of them. And often some people's process of grief does not, it's hard to ask of things of people. So I, you know, I talk about in the book times where like I would, you know, I, um, I, you know, so my, my brother passed away and I, that was very deliberate where I was like, I'm going to go to this comedy show and yeah. this comedy show um, will, I was just looking for a moment, right? I wasn't going to be like, this comedy show is going to make me feel a lot better. Mm-hmm. But it, if, when I think about it, it did feel like it realigned me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is, that could be every comedy show that's happening. You don't know what people's lives are like, you know? Right. And and everyone, and, you know, as I say also in this book, I don't want to say comedy is better than anything else. Like, if your thing is movies, and you you, you lost a loved one, and then you went to see um spirited away or whatever yeah. <laughs> then like i'm just saying this is how comedy does it That's there's right. things that are special about it there's how the audience can interact these are it's an idealistic book like i i always am fighting the part of me that hates american comedy audiences where i'm like I, and i and because I have such a high standard for both comedians and audiences and audiences didn't sign up for that they're just going out on a tuesday but when they come together, it's it's why I am idealistic because there really can be so, such a special thing that could happen, and you know the, the you know the greatest moments of my life. I mean, the reason I am doing this is that I I do believe there is an echelon that's reached, and I do believe with more audiences that appreciate what they're seeing, and more and more comedians who appreciate what they're doing and appreciate the audience. So if both groups 
come together more idealistically or at least less cynically or more open to each other, this is things like I experience will happen more often or just. And so I'll talk like this. And then also like, ultimately you'll laugh more. Like, don't worry. Yeah. I know I'm talking about like, you'll not cry as much, but ultimately what I'm saying is like, you know how you go to comedy shows and sometimes you think some comedians are good and sometimes less so. Well, I think if you read the book, you'll think more comedians are good. I feel in some ways you just gave me the yes and story. Oh, really? Which one? Well, if you have another one, that's great. But I mean, what, what you're talking about is you can have high standards for, for the audience. Yes. And you can also have this egalitarian, democratic, like, hey, it's, it's all good. Just go and laugh and enjoy. And if you reflect a little bit, that's probably going to be good for you, too. Yes. Don't have to always. Yeah, I mean, I do think it reflects what happened. I like I I was writing for Split Sider, which was a comedy news website, and then I moved to Vulture not to write about comedy. I was moved to be a generalist. Oh, I didn't blogger. know that. Yeah. Okay. I was moved to be a generalist because I was a starting out, and I love blogging. All I ever wanted to do my entire life was be a blogger at Vulture. It was my dream job. Um, and so at 27, I got it, and there was a bit of like, now what? Mm-hmm. You know, and. We had a meeting about what we can do to grow the sites. These sites were still quite small. I think it was like six or seven people work there. Now, let's say 40 people work there. But I was like, I don't know. We can do things about comedy. I said in a meeting. And then my boss's boss was like, yeah, you should do that. Hmm. And that was the directive. You do it. And so like in a sort of yes and it's like, yes, I'll do that. And I will then if I'm going to do it, let's and essentially help try to create what um, a regular comedy coverage can really look like, which there, you know, there was a person who covered the LA comedy club scene in the 1970s. Uh, Lori Stone was a critic for the village voice. who was a theater critic and then wrote about comedy who really was kind of like the first comedy critic. Um, she has a book called laughing in the dark, which is mm-hmm. about that. And then you had sort of Jason Zinneman, and me yeah. around the same time. And, but I was just like, okay, well, if I'm going to do that, what are the, how, what is, how do I want to do it? What do I want it to look like? How do I, what is my goal? You know, like if it's, is it just to tell people who funny comedians are? Well, that definitely is one of the goals, especially when I was starting to do it 11 years ago where people didn't know who the funny comedians were. It was really easy to be like, there's this person, John Mulaney, there's this person, Hannibal Burris, there's this person, Amy Schumer, there's Broad City, there's Broad. It was like, there's all these comedians that were right below the surface they were all comedy nerd people i was easy to just be like here they are mm-hmm. and then i did that and i but what i never did was try to ex- explain how sort of comedy worked mm-hmm. and then i just sort of did it a little bit and there was some pushback both sort of from comedians but also from like people like you can't do this you're killing a frog or whatever and i just was like i think there's something here yeah and then people liked it like it got a response. I didn't know. I didn't set out to be a comedy critic or whatever. I only told very recently when the book came out, accepted that I'm a critic at all. And, um, but so I kept on doing it and I figured out how to do it. And then somewhere along the way, I, you know, I started the podcast, good one where I talked to comedians about their jokes and how they work. And I started it thinking that maybe comedians would be like, no, thank you. And for some reason, I wish I've asked comedians, how it happened where they just all sort of at once for the most part were like you're allowed to do this we'll yeah. tell you the thing we've never said out loud which is that part of the story is made up that conversation is actually a comedian i knew 
And this for that conversation is a different person, but I made him one character. And that conversation happened in a parking lot and not on the side of the road. And I was like, that has never been said out loud. No one that's never been said to a non-comedian that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I remember that Jen Kirkman said that one time, the first time anyone told me that a part of their story was just like a amalgam. And I was, I was like, Oh my God, some, this is, there has to be people who are excited to hear this. So that's why. So then I took it. I mean, I took it in a direction that I am um, uh, populist or whatever, like what the audience tells, tell me they want me to do. I move in that direction. And so they wanted this sort of how this stuff works. So I would write to how the stuff worked. And I did a variety of things to that method. And even I wasn't planning on writing a book. I always would say I wouldn't write a book. And then certain things happened where I had an agent who was always very nice to me. I was like, well, I wrote this big list about Adam Sandler. Can I turn that into a book? And he's like, no, but people would like buy a book that's sort of generally about comedy. And I was like, I don't even know what that mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, just start a list of chapters, subjects, and comedians. You think you can like write a longer thing that would, and how, which comedians would go into which chapter. And then I did that. And I go, I go, this is a book. And he goes, I think so. And hmm. I go, okay, if you say so, I don't know. You work in books. Yeah, yeah. So then I just kept on doing what he told me to do. And um, I did a proposal. And then my editor, who got it, got it more than I did. Because, again, I didn't really. He was like, was good. he was, goes, don't do the book that this proposal is proposing. And I was, so he's like, yeah, just follow this book. It's a very thorough proposal. Just do what this is. And things change. Like that audience chapter was not in the proposal. Um. And, but I've always, I always just am following what, what the situation is putting in and then saying yes. And then when I say yes, I'm then being like, what can I do with it? I mean, I I think there's, that is sort of where I am sort of professionally. I mean, the, like, even when I decided to become a journalist at all, I was living in San Francisco. I was sort of failed at working in like restaurant marketing and thank uh, God. Yeah, I, who knows? I mean, it's just sort of like I like food, and I guess I should be in the business of food. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I will start studying French and start pitching articles, and either I'll become a journalist, which is my last attempt at sort of a dream job, or I'll learn French and move to France. And then my life will be a person who lives in France and who cares. My career is not that important. Yep. And then so someone was so, so someone was like, yeah, well, we'll we'll run this. Uh, my friend Jason Diamond at this website called Juicy.com ran. I, I was like, can I do a column where I write about the Thursday night comedies? He goes, sure. And it's not, it wasn't Jewish at all. He's just like, sure, you can do it. Mm-hmm. So I stopped learning French. I don't know any French. Um, but that was, so that, but that was literally just being like, world, tell me which direction to go in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I, and I've, periodically things will like that happen, you know, like the, the sort of funnier examples I had were like, three times I've been asked to audition for things like not. And, and I go, okay. I like, I auditioned for this commercial, um, this Coca-Cola Walmart commercial because they were looking for a hipster type. And my mm-hmm. ex, uh, my ex-girlfriend worked for the cast, a casting agency. And she was like, you should do this or whatever. And I show up and I had to sing a song. And <laughs> do you sing? Uh, n- no, but it was sort of in the sort of like Ben Gibbard, nasal range that you don't right, really you can do that 
Yeah, yeah you I don't really it. need a belt. And I knew enough about, like, I could sing well enough and know enough about music to know what not singing that singing would be. Yeah, sure. So I actually did one, I start singing, and they go, that was great. Or, nah, this is my version. They said, that was great. We love, you know, it was really good. We love your smile or whatever. And I have weird teeth, but I think they were looking for someone quirky. And um, they're like, now we just needed to act it out a little bit more mm-hmm. and sing. And I did not know how to act. I only knew how to vaguely sing. And I was terrible. But then I was like, well, I got to go to the end of the song. Um, but I, and then I did, and then I didn't, you know, I never acted again since. And then I was once, there was like a, I can't even know what network was doing a pilot that was like a, supposed to be like Billy on the street, but on the subway. Okay. And I thought I was just going to read, like do a, like a teleprompter read for it. And then I show up and they have like, a bunch of chairs and strangers sitting there and they're like no for the next 30 minutes you have to like improvise the show oh no and i so i said yes i'll do that and oh, so that's like the sure. most direct example it's a terrible yes and yeah i, I should have been like i'm not gonna be the person absolutely not absolutely not my yes and to you is to not have me not do this okay so normally i'd wrap up right now yeah but i realized there was one thing i didn't did you end up writing about hassan minaj after the new yorker piece or not no, I have not. So I didn't think you did. So I do believe people are going to ask me about this all press star because it's like, here's the thing, which is truth and comedy. I wrote a chapter about it. It's my favorite chapter in the book. Yep. But I go, well, I can't. This is a bit esoteric. But I do think like when people read it, they'll be like, huh, what? Like comedians aren't necessarily telling the truth, but in some ways it's still the truth. And what does that even mean? It's just sort of like a curiosity and I felt like was useful and, and I thought there's a lot of comedians at that trend. And I didn't really think that was going to be a defining moment. And then the Hassan stuff comes out. And I go, oh, man, I wish everyone already read my book. Yep. <laughs> my book would be what everyone would be talking about right now. Well, I, and I was literally reading it and realizing I really can't start tweeting about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's for you to do. Yeah, yeah. It's just a chapter about... About if you really combine the fifth chapter and the sixth chapter, the fifth yeah. chapter is about pol- politics, daily show stuff yes. like that. With the sixth chapter, it does not answer the question of how do I feel about the situation. My well, main and, feeling, and I, don't, and I didn't ask. I, no, I asked my main thing it. is like it's weird, right? But yeah, it's weird. The main thing is like it's a good example because it's like if you read those two chapters, will you know how I feel about this the Hassan thing? I don't know, but it will inform how you think about it. Yeah, that's and that's right. the goal of the book. The goal is being like, and not to be like, well, that excuses everything. Just to be like, oh, I now think about this more expansively, and as a result, I still think what he did was wrong, or I, I, you know what, maybe it's not so wrong, or maybe what is wrong about it is not what I thought was wrong. Like I, I when I saw people talk about it, it felt often like it was like a person went on stage and started lying out of nowhere. You just was yeah, like, that's not, you're, that's not you're just a lie for personal gain, which I understand. Like, if you zoom out, maybe it's like that. But ultimately, it was an artist who made a creative decision about certain parts of this story. And that's the thing that I always go in on. It's like, when did that happen? Where was he? What was happening in the show? And not to say this excuses him or nothing, but like, at some point, someone had to make a decision to do this. And like, as I write about in the book, the audience is often, will often tell you when they think the exact truth is not interesting. Yes. And if you try to prove a story to them, they will be like, they'll back up. 
And comedians over and over again are in the process of finding out how to how often it's condensing. Oh, they're getting lost in the math of the story. There's too mm-hmm. many characters. They don't know who they are. Let's remove this aspect of it. You know, or the sort of the most simple example. It's like Mike Birbiglia has a show about how he wasn't sure he wanted to be a parent. Then he was proven correct once he had a kid. Yep. And it's a beautifully composed one-person show, stand-up special. But to do that, all he did was remove the times in the first year of being a parent. He liked being a parent. Yes. <laughs> so, like, yes, it is true. All those things happen, give or take. And But he's using it to tell a specific story about the part of himself that felt this way. Yep. And... But it, obviously, it's different than if it's you're a news figure, blah, blah, blah. But, like, it is... I, I don't know. Like, I do... I'm excited. I hope people still have it in their minds. Like, that... Yeah. The, because... and I, But not in a way where like, why doesn't he write about Hassan? This is, like, the number one story about truth that have ever happened. I was like, well, the book has already been printed. Already been printed. Yeah, Anne's book, uh, which is an academic press uh, yeah. next year comedy theory book she the last section i believe is all in comedy ethics mm. which i think is an interesting interesting area and i think yeah so important for everyone and 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 this there I'll, I'll let's leave it as this is there's not an easy answer uh to it it's it's complicated it's nuanced and and should be talked about and written about because of that I think. yeah yeah i i say i don't write that much about ethics exactly because i am not good at it like i'm not good about being a moralist and saying what it's right or wrong not saying other people shouldn't. I am just better at writing as like a sort of formalist. The thing that I I think I'm probably most hard on in the book is a comedian probably should think about how different audience members receive their material. Yes. And and you are making a decision to care about or not to care about that. Yeah. The book is called Comedy Book, How Comedy Conquered Culture and the Magic That Makes It Work. Jesse David Fox, thanks for coming on the pod. Oh, thank you for having me. Sorry for talking so much. <laughs> Getting the Yes Hand is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Ben Anderson from WGN, and we get support at the Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about the Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com.
Survive. From the mountain, no one survives.